Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. In this week's podcast, we will be digging into the second season of Twin Peaks, the only full, traditional, conventionally sized season of Twin Peaks there ever was, about 22 episodes. It was a crazy, dense, jam-packed, wildly amazing, deeply disappointing ride, and it will take us nine hours to recap the whole thing for you, so pack a sandwich. Here we go, Darren Wright. Let's do it. I think if we could do it in under an hour, I'll be a little bit impressed with us. But you know, Jeff, when Twin Peaks Season 2 first aired, uh, I was roughly the age of Little Nicky the Devil Child, which we'll get to in a little bit. Great subplot, or terrible subplot. Hard to tell, really. You were, as we discussed last week, a uh, young man in your college years. Uh, So maybe you can kind of like set the context for us before we get into Twin Peaks season two. What was happening with the world, with the production that kind of led into this season of television? Well, first the earth cooled, then the dinosaurs came. No, just (laughs) kidding. Um, No, this was, uh, let's go back to the summer of 1990. The second season of Twin Peaks premiered on September 30th of 1990, and it had been about four months since the season finale of that limited series that captured the imagination was a huge pop culture phenomenon. But already there, you know, if we were being really honest about this phenomenon, we should point out that the ratings for season one kind of declined every single week as it aired on Thursday nights. That huge night of television back there in the late 80s, early 90s, incredibly competitive, and people were already kind of wary, wary of Twin Peaks. By the time season two rolls around, there was a ton of excitement among Twin Peaks fans for the return, but that wariness, that skepticism about Twin Peaks was building, and we saw it in a number of different ways over the summer. The first thing is, is that David Lynch's movie, Wild at Heart premiered during that summer, and two days after the season one finale, it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival to wild raves and deep booze, and uh, and it would ultimately end up, not booze the drink, Darren, but booze as in boo, <laughs> just, just in case you were confused about that. Um, but we begin to see here this backlash against David Lynch among people who either thought he was an amazing artist or something of a pastiche phony that affected artfulness. I mean, he was clearly an incredibly talented filmmaker, but there was a camp that really just didn't trust his art. So Wild at Heart was an incredibly polarizing thing. Twin Peaks, the first season, was nominated for 14 Emmys. It only won two It won two technical categories, costumes and editing. It lost Best Drama to L.A. Law. And Kyle MacLachlan, who was nominated for Best Actor, lost to Peter Falk playing Columbo, which I just think in retrospect is some kind of just that's a historical Emmy injustice right there. But maybe indicative of the fact that the TV establishment didn't trust Twin Peaks. On top of all of that, David Lynch was on the cover of Time Magazine a couple weeks before the premiere of season two. And it was this loving, great profile on David Lynch, but it also kind of established some questions that a lot of people were asking about the second season of Twin Peaks, whether it was going to be able to maintain its level of quality. 
and kind of raising some suspicions of David Lynch, even as the critic in particular who wrote the piece had a lot of affection and admiration for him and his art. I imagine now watching season two, it's easier watching it now, knowing there's more coming, as opposed to the first go around where it was just this kind of constant frustration. I'd be intrigued to know, Jeff, what was it like for you to be digging back into season two? I mean, like, I have to say, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast already is getting live text updates from you as you watch Twin Peaks. And you you were kind of, a lot of things were jumping out at you about the first two episodes of the season, which were, of course, the two episodes directed by David Lynch. How did those episodes kind of resonate with you now as you were rewatching them so many years uh, after first seeing them? When I first watched those two episodes back in 1990, I don't think there was anything I was looking forward to more in life or ever in my life at that time, which I know sounds kind of sad, but it was. I, I remember that watching that season premiere. It was a huge event. It was super exciting. I remember at the time loving every single strange, indulgent moment of that two-hour season premiere from the absolutely absurd and ridiculous protracted resolution of the Who Shot Agent Cooper cliffhanger where he's lying on his floor bleeding and the sort of like old waiter comes in and walks in, walks out, walks in, walks out, struggles to hang up the phone <laughs> where Andy's on the other line going, Agent Cooper, what's wrong? Agent Cooper. And he, and he, he he's trying to deliver Cooper some milk and he wants him to sign for the bill. And Agent Cooper asks, does this include a gratuity? Which kind of felt like a whole meta acknowledgement of the whole gratuitous nature of this really darkly comic, classically Lynchian, stretched out comic sequence before it culminates with a classic moment of Twin Peaks supernaturalism, the arrival of the giant who then gives Agent Cooper a series of clues that will be unpacked over the period of the next several episodes. And in this moment, the show kind of completely plants this flag that says, hey, you know, in season one where you kind of thought that maybe this was sort of like a a mystery that was going to make sense no guess what we're gonna we're gonna start reframing this entire mystery around this supernatural mythology that we can call the black lodge and that there are spirits and demons and odd wood sprites i guess that are this classic lovecraftian cosmic horror kind of element that sort of haunts and bedevils twin peaks i remember being so into it and so into everything that followed including the end where we get our first real big hit of Bob, this sort of evil demon that would end up becoming maybe the chief antagonist of all of Twin Peaks, and this sort of very horrific, violent reconstruction, this remembering of the murder of Laura Palmer. And then I even loved even more so the second episode, also directed by David Lynch, which is an even better episode where you just have classic scene after classic scene of Lynchian eeriness and absurd comedy and horror and nothing more scary maybe and kind of hilarious than that sequence that begins with James and Maddie and Donna singing just you (laughs) and I And this this song that then kind of just unfolds like with this really deliberate, dreamy, romantic, funny pace, but then ends with this incredible act of terror 
terror in which Maddie sees Bob enter the room in slow motion and climb over the couch and get right in her face and our face. That was just an extraordinary moment that, for me, that episode completely recharged my battery for all of Twin Peaks even more so than the premiere. That said, Darren, that's how I felt at the time. As I rewatched it this past week, I would say that that season premiere does not play as well for me now as it did then. I actually just think it's subpar Lynch. In that episode, it's sort of everything that's Lynchy is held hostage by the business of launching the season and paying off cliffhangers and just getting the narrative going. But that second episode is still a masterpiece, man. I mean, that thing is just, is a beautiful thing to use a David Lynch phrase. What, what did you think of those two episodes? I felt kind of similar to you. And I, I would just say that you were talking about that incredible sequence with James and Maddie and Donna. This is one of the exceedingly rare moments in Twin Peaks season two where the teenaged characters actually seem to be like purposefully teenage. There's something wonderfully sort of teeny bopping about this image of them just sort of in their living room recording this song. The context of it is so wonderfully maddening because of course James was in love with Laura and Maddie is the vertigo swapped duplicate of Laura and James is now in love with Donna and then you have the Bob moment sequences like that they bring up what I love about the show which is just this really willful and wonderful and you know just sensually enthralling version of television that to me is, is really ageless mixed with that you have some of the stuff you're talking about which comes up a lot in season two which is these moments where you, where all of a sudden watching Twin Peaks now you know you suddenly just realize like oh, right, like I'm watching a 26-year-old TV show working within these really specific and obvious constrictions. The scene that jumps out to me so much from the season premiere uh, is a scene that focuses on a character who I truly don't think I even realized he was in season one. For me, a constant peak is the character of Major Briggs, played by Don S. Davis. He has a sequence in the season premiere where he goes to the double R diner to talk to Bobby, his son. And up to this point, their relationship has seemed what I might term very much in the sort of spirit of that mid-century Americana. You know, Bobby Briggs, as you mentioned last week, this sort of wonderfully rebellious figure who simultaneously suggests a kind of James Dean era rebel archetype with something newer and grungier and more in the spirit of the 1990s. Major Briggs, this sort of military man from any time, and he comes to the diner and gives this incredible three-minute monologue about a dream that he had. And in this dream, he saw his son. He has this great line about the mind revealing itself. And that kind of establishes this character as someone who will be totally central to what I find most fascinating about the show, to these sort of greater mysteries and greater supernatural elements. But as played by Don S. Davis, who, having researched him a little bit, he actually did serve in the military for a while, and he just brings this incredible deadpan to the material. So I do think that these two episodes kind of set up that dissonance in a way that is sort of interesting and also sort of frustrating. Again, we're there's still a lot of one-eyed jacks going on in uh, these two episodes. After these first two, it feels like there's a lot of episodes that happen and then we get to the next big sequence that, you know, is obviously central to the show's mythology. Yeah, I totally agree. Upon rewatching uh season 2, the character of Major Briggs 
does jump out at you is a major figure, not just in terms of narrating the new mythology and the cosmology of Twin Peaks, but he just captures your imagination for the history of this man and and everything he means thematically to the matrix of the show and all the Americana stuff that you are highlighting. And that scene in particular with him and Bobby Briggs, I mean, one of the great behind the scenes stories about Twin Peaks as chronicled in this book that I mentioned last week, The Essential Wrapped in plastic by John Thorne. He kind of talks about how that was a really crucial scene in establishing tones for season two. And specifically the character of Bobby Briggs. Initially, Dana Ashbrook was told to act that scene in a way in which he was coached by Mark Frost to sort of respond rather derisively, maybe to his dad's big speech and kind of say, ah, dad, you're kind of crazy, that kind of vibe. But when they got on set and David Lynch directed him, uh, he said, no, 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 do the opposite. You're just deeply moved by what your dad is telling you. And you think about then where Bobby kind of goes in this season after that, in which he actually tries to make this sort of like floundering comical attempt to sort of rehab his character in some ways. But this scene kind of launches it. And I think everyone behind the scenes agrees that that was the right way to go. And the way they performed it, in fact, was, you know, I think that Dana was kind of like struggling to get to the the emotionality that David Lynch wanted. So David asked the actor who plays Briggs, David, to kind of stand off camera and to really perform it with Dana in a really earnest way. Like Davis actually starts crying off camera while delivering this line so that Ashbrook could respond to it. And then Ashbrook has this response as Bobby that is just deeply moved by all of that. So that's a really key tonal scene. And something that struck me re-watching the show was There is a thoughtful design to this whole season that you can see with retrospect eyes watching it all. The whole idea of Wyndham Earl, for example, is planted right there in episode two. And then Major Briggs kind of like bringing in this mythology that would sort of get unpacked even more later in the season. You know, we find out that Major Briggs was involved in some Project Blue Book UFO program, but instead of watching the skies, he was actually watching the deep forest. There is something kind of mystical and extraterrestrial about Twin Peaks. So Briggs ends up becoming this major figure in the show in terms of recasting all of Twin Peaks as a supernatural narrative. My theory, which you'll either appreciate or despise, is much like how on Lost, once Desmond joined the show, he was sort of arguably the hero, or anyhow, he was the most mythologically precise version of the hero archetype, and he would just sort of swan in once a season for a mind-bending episode and then generally kind of leave. I I feel like Briggs is that for Twin Peaks. I haven't worked out this whole Lost comparison fully, I'm not sure who Mr. Echo is, maybe Andy. I want to kind of move us on, Jeff, to the moment that maybe defines this season for better or for worse, and certainly defines a lot of how we talk about Twin Peaks, which is the decision to solve, I use that term very, very loosely, to solve Laura Palmer's murder. You know, we get to the 14th episode of Twin Peaks titled Lonely Souls. This is another directed by David Lynch episode. This has one of my all-time favorite, beautiful, and disturbing moments of Lynchian majesty. 
when Dale goes to the bar, the singer is singing, the giant appears, we cut over to the Palmer household where a truly just deeply disturbing sequence of murderousness and gleeful, disgusting maliciousness is on display. But obviously it creates as many problems as it solves in sort of an interesting way. Yeah, you know, a lot of critics, of when, when they talk about season two, they talk about the erratic nature of the quality of season two. And even those first two episodes that we discuss kind of establish a pattern where you kind of get an okay episode and then you get a thrilling episode. The quality was just hit and miss sometimes from week to week. And by that time, when we get to this episode, Twin Peaks really needs a really strong statement, something that really re-energizes you. And we get that with this amazing episode. It completely blew me away then, and it blows me away now, especially those final 15 minutes where we learned that, yes, Leland Palmer is possessed, it seems, by this demon named Bob, who apparently entered into him when he was a child and vacationing, summering at his grandfather's lake house. And I think that we are supposed to wonder if maybe Leland was maybe raped or uh, sexually abused by this man when he was young, and it kind of screwed him up, but that's kind of kept very, very vague. But regardless, Leland is a very disturbed, tortured man. And so we learn in this harrowing sequence that kind of begins with Sarah Palmer crawling down her stairs, drugged anew by her husband because he's about to kill in their home again. And uh, he ends up killing Maddie. And in easily one of the most disturbing scenes of violence and suggested violence. I mean, the violence itself is terrible. What it suggests is even grosser. And it's juxtaposed, as you kind of talked about, with this eerie scene at the roadhouse where Cooper and Truman and the log lady are watching this performance of these songs by Julie Cruz. Meanwhile, at another table, James and Donna are sort of reigniting their sort of young romance love where we're kind of has all of these amazing tones going on at once. And, you know, Cooper's full of expectation that they're about to solve the murder of Laura Palmer. In fact, I think in this episode, they've already arrested Benjamin Horn for the murder. But he knows that maybe there's some unfinished business tied to his increasing sense that there is something mystical about Twin Peaks. And so he goes to this bar. And, and then, yeah, like Julie Cruz is interrupted by the Giants. And the Giant has this great line. It is happening again. And suddenly this sort of like sweet scene at the bar is completely swamped by a palpable sadness and horror as everyone there feels it. And we're intercutting with this violence back at the Palmer home. And it's an incredibly impactful piece of television. But as we've kind of discussed, when you understand that behind the scenes, Mark Frost and David Lynch were under this intense pressure to bring resolution to the Laura Palmer mystery because ratings were sliding. David Lynch didn't want to do it. Mark Frost supported his partner, but kind of said, hey, look, we have to do it. And so this whole tragedy that kind of plays out has almost like a passive aggressive tone to it. It's it's full of mourning for the end of the mystery 
of Laura Palmer and maybe even some anger that they have to do it at all. That's almost the vibe that I get in in this scene that kind of juxtaposes this sort of grief with this horrendous violence and another death of another innocent and another woman, which is another thing that we should probably talk about, which is the violence toward women in in this show and what that means. But what did you make of that scene? Am am I talking gibberish now to you? No, no, uh, you are not talking gibberish. You you may be talking backwards, but fortunately they have reversed it. So you're talking forwards just with like sort of a strange accent to it. Um, Something that (laughs) intrigues me watching season two is the double question of if it had been renewed for a third season, what would have happened? What were the elements of this season that they would have brainstormed into being as truly defining the next season? And in turn... How may that affect what we are about to see this sort of revival season? And that sequence gets at something that I think the show only really does a couple other times, which is this incredible, deep, psychological, holistic feeling of a wave crashing and everyone in town feeling it. You know, you only really get that again much later in the season. There's that otherwise generally unmemorable episode, which ends with Bob kind of reappearing in the woods. But, you know, throughout that episode random people at random times in the town their hand kind of shakes a little bit and there's this interesting feeling of is the thing that links all these strange disparate strands of the show somehow these people can all feel when something is happening in their town something that I just absolutely love about the mess of season two is you move from that sequence at the end of that episode which is just for me I mean peak all time top 10 David Lynch into the the next episode, which is largely about Leland Palmer carrying the dead body of his latest victim around in the trunk of his car. It's almost this sort of running silent movie gag in a way, you know, this clowning with her dead body in the trunk. And, you know, he gets pulled over at one point and they almost look in the trunk and they wind up not doing it. And I cherish Ray Wise's performance in, in these episodes. I think that he really manages to sell some of the complexity and even some of the confusion I have with the character. He seems to suggest, are we seeing the true Leland Palmer? Are we seeing behind the sort of facade of who he appeared to be? Or is this a different figure, you know, to sort of go back to the Lost comparison? Is this him kind of playing, you know, John Locke in the later seasons when he's actually not John Locke at all? And we can kind of talk about maybe some of our frustrations with that mystery, but as performed by Ray Wise, I just think it's so wonderful. And there's a moment in, I believe, in that same episode in Drive with a Dead Girl when he's been told that Ben Horn has been taken in. And from afar, he appears to be crying, but we see close up that he's actually laughing. And on one hand, It is a frustration to sort of have evil personified in these episodes, but he does such a good job with it that it sort of works for me. But I'd be intrigued to know, Jeff, what is your interpretation of what we are supposed to think about Bob and about Leland? I mean, we've talked about some of our concerns with this, and one concern is... 
is this weirdly giving this supernatural explanation to something that is not supernatural? You know, is it simplifying it by saying that, oh, it's a it's a scary guy in the woods who looks like a, a set dresser? I mean, I, I kind of struggle with that a little bit. Is that something that was sort of on your mind at all as we went into this sort of final trilogy of episodes that focuses so strongly on Leland Palmer? It was definitely a frustration and a disappointment that I had at the time watching the show, especially in that final and installment of the sort of like end of Leland trilogy, the episode entitled Arbitrary Law, in which our heroes finally realize that Leland is the killer and set a trap for him so that they can like trap him in the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. And then caught, Bob confesses and then leaves Leland's body. And then Leland, overcome with the horror of everything that he's done, commits suicide, which leads to this really beautiful moment, actually, not directed by David Lynch. Um, I believe it was directed by the director, Tim Hunter, who is maybe one of the better non-Lynch directors of Twin Peaks. We have this very sweet scene where Agent Cooper guides Leland into the afterlife. It's a little bit of like, you know, well, it's literally like, enter into the light, Leland, enter into the light. Leland, the time has come for you to seek the path. Your soul has set you face to face with the clear light. And you are now about to experience it in its reality, wherein all things are like the void and cloudless sky, and the naked, spotless intellect is like a transparent vacuum, without circumference or center. Leland, in this moment, know yourself, and abide in that state. Look to the light, Leland. Find the light. I see it. Into the light, Leland. Into the light. I see her. She's there. Into the light, Leland. She's beautiful. Into the light. Somehow, the acting of both Ray Wise and Kyle MacLachlan sell it. And that's the saving grace of all Twin Peaks episodes, not directed by David Lynch, which is this great cast that knows their characters, that are fighting to hold on to their characters, even as the writing goes a little bit crazy, but are able to really kind of sell everything that's sort of beautiful and interesting about them and Lynchian about them. It's a, it's a great moment. After that moment, though, you get this button scene, this conversation that takes place between Albert and Cooper and the sheriff and even Major Briggs stops by for a little drop by in which they sort of wrestle with what then does Bob mean and whether or not Leland was fully responsible then for everything that he did. And you get this line from Albert, which at the time just did not sit with me well, which is that Bob represents simply the evil that men do. And it just kind of felt like a weird simplification of evil and demonic possession and just the issues of morality in the show. But upon rewatching it, I had a more gracious regard for all of that. I think ultimately the show is trying to have it always. It wants to say that Leland is responsible for his evil. He was a dark, damaged guy who, for whatever reason had a very sick relationship with his daughter, an incestuous relationship with his daughter, and he was a serial killer. And he had perverse sexual relationships with a lot of different young women. But that 
the mythology and perspective of the show is, is that because he had this darkness and damage in him, he therefore then became vulnerable to demonic possession by Bob and these supernatural forces that love to live on this kind of despair and pain and suffering. And uh, Twin Peaks apparently is a hub for that. So it, it wants to have it always. It, it wants to have a slightly psychological explanation for Leland's evil. It wants to have a psychosexual answer for Leland's evil. It wants to make him completely responsible for everything. But it also wants it to sort of fit in with this larger supernatural thing that is slow, well, very quickly now defining everything in Twin Peaks. So I had mixed feelings about it at the time. It works a bit better for me now. Yeah, I mean, I would say like that last scene of that episode that you're describing, especially coming down from just such a high in that final sequence with Leland, that last scene feels very akin to the famously unnecessary penultimate scene of Psycho when that doctor just comes in and kind of explains for what seems like 20 minutes, like, well, here's what happened to Norman Bates and here's the psychological explanation and here's what psycho means and here's what freud said about this and it's just it feels very inessential and you know if if all you're going to say is well here are four explanations but we don't know that the truth maybe it's better just to say we don't know the truth and leave it at that but one thing that's always on my mind when i'm watching any tv show is after the apocalypse happens if this tv show is all future generations have to memorialize us for how convincing will the religion they form around it be and i will just say that the religion that will be formed by our deep cyborg descendants around Twin Peaks will make sense to a certain extent because as far as like versions of the afterlife and as far as like things that I would want someone to be whispering in my ear as I expire go what Dale Cooper says to Leland Palmer is so haunting and so beautiful and I I love that so much that I think it justifies that last scene, which does feel the most kind of ABC mandated sequence of anything that happens this season, right? It feels like the most, you know, okay, we love this, guys, but you need to kind of explain this a little bit more. And I would just say, too, that, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating about David Lynch is that he seems to believe in evil as a physical concept. Not to say that his films or his work seems to follow any obvious moral binary, and not to say that even when evil is personified, whether it's Robert Blake in Lost Highway or Bob here, it's not as if he's saying like that evil is separate from what the characters and what the human people are doing. But he believes in evil, and I do wonder if... What's interesting about that final scene is it seems as if there's another creative force. Maybe it's Mark Frost. Maybe it's the other writers. I appreciate the idea of getting across. Yes, Bob is a thing, but also, yes, Leland did this and he is responsible for it as well. And I, I, I admire the show's attempt to grapple with that, even if it seems like it could have been grappled with in a slightly less off-Broadway play. Here are four characters trying to interpret what just happened sort of way. You said something interesting there and kind of funny where you said, okay, ABC's like, okay, we like this, but you're going to have to explain it a little bit more. I kind of wonder how much they really like that explanation because in these three episodes about Leland and then ultimately the death of Leland, you sense that Frost and Lynch and their writers are trying to find some happy medium with ABC of like, okay, 
we're going to tell you who killed Laura Palmer, but we are going to essentially answer that question by recasting the mystery. So yes, we have resolved it per se, but this solution that Leland was possessed by Bob is simply just trading one mystery for another. Just to kind of like go back just a little bit, something that maybe we forgot to mention was that those first two episodes didn't just reframe the Laura Palmer mystery as something supernatural in general, but essentially just changed the whole question about who killed Laura Palmer. Because in those first two episodes, we learned that there was a third man that was on the scene and part of Laura Palmer's last night alive. This was a piece of information that had not been established in the first season. So there was this huge question throughout all of these early episodes of the second season is who is the third man? And ultimately that third man ends up being Leland, but he's possessed by Bob. So I do wonder how much ABC really loved this solution because it allowed the producers to keep the mystery alive, but it also kind of, again, just triples, quadruples down on the supernatural, which we have to talk about here, was not a really a big thing in you know 1990 television. This was a, a risky thing, like genre, sci-fi genre, fantasy genre stuff, something that networks didn't really do a lot. It wouldn't be until the middle of the decade when we get the X-Files and Buffy the Vampire Slayer that you start to see broadcast television open its mind a little bit to sort of genre stuff. But, you know, I, I just question how much ABC really loved it. I'm sure that they were just terrified of like, how, now how do we manage? It was This was a difficult creative property to manage as it was. Now we got to deal with the whole like, Black Lodge mythology and Demon Bob. like, uh, And there is this theory that Mark Frost has talked about before, which is that, you know, was ABC essentially trying to distance itself and even kind of bury Twin Peaks? Because another thing that we didn't talk about is that at this point in the show's life, the show is airing on Saturday nights. It's no longer airing on Thursday nights like it did in, in season one. So that was part of lending that vibe of skepticism about Twin Peaks that a lot of people had entering into the season. The fact that ABC was had renewed it, but was going to put it on, on Saturday nights as we're about to talk about, you know, as, as the season progresses, the show ends up kind of switching time slots, goes on weird hiatuses, the Gulf War happens. Um, so it gets, you know, preempted a lot. And Mark Frost has even speculated that due to some sort of behind the scenes corporate ownership issues that was involved at ABC at the time, what was owned by a family friendly company called Capital Cities before it sold to an even bigger family friendly friendly company in the form of Disney, whether or not Twin Peaks was not on brand for them. And so treating it in a way to let it die, like might've been some big corporate conspiracy. I don't know, but uh, this is all to say, I question how much ABC really loved this solution. Can we just try to imagine a time in TV history where like it was at all strange or not desired to have a supernatural element in your show? Like today, if you go to a network and pitch a cop show, they'll be like, great. Uh, what if the cop is Lucifer? <laughs> um, you know, we come back from the final episode with 
Leland. Uh, we're thrown into his funeral where we are introduced to the fact that the mayor of Twin Peaks, a kind of old Statler and Waldorf type guy, indeed has a Statler and Waldorf pal in the form of his brother who runs the newspaper. In the context of the sort of incredible epic cosmic finale we just had to the Laura Palmer plot line, this just feels like a complete step back into the sort of wacky version of Mayberry that Twin Peaks sort of initially seemed to be. I mean, you got Ben Horn is very busy for what seems like about half the season reenacting the Civil War, which is something that I have to say, I don't know how this played at the time. He's like reenacting it, and in his version of it, the South is winning, which initially (laughs) seems like it's sort of meant to be this dark and strange thing. But you reach a point where there are just many, many episodes of people wearing Confederate attire and him pretending to be Robert E. Lee. And it's just very strange and unclear, like what the joke is or like, you know, what the joke is supposed to be. I can only imagine that that stuff must have been incredibly frustrating to watch at the time. Were you still keeping up with the show week to week throughout the entire second season? Were you a devotee even through some of those lull moments? I was, uh, but this was definitely a part of my life and fandom of Twin Peaks where it was strained. I'm watching this show lose relevance by the week lose power by the week and just hoping that this is just the normal mid-season lull of any show watching those episodes in the middle of the season and watching it kind of consistently go to the absurd comedy tones and the wacky comedy tones uh, was really frustrating. You know, the first third of the season, yes, we have this huge explosion of supernatural stuff and it planted this new mythology and planted these flags. But at the same time, right after the death of Leland, it almost feels like the show was like, okay, let's pull the reins back on that. Let's see if we can introduce some kind of grounding and normalcy again. And, you know, it was sort of like visually represented by a decision that lots of Twin Peaks fans, I think, look back on and regret, which was the emergence of Lumberjack Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) Agent Cooper uh, decides after that Leland is dead and the Laura Palmer case is technically resolved, the show invents some reasons for him to stay in town. One is that he's fallen in love with the place, but two is he's now under investigation by the FBI and accused of some crimes while committed on the job that ends up being a frame. And he's got to clear himself with some help from his new buddies in town, um, as well as a new character that comes into town played by David Duchovny in the form of Dennis Bryson. I'm sorry, Denise Bryson. He was once Dennis, but now he's Denise and he's, he's transitioning and this great comic performance by David Duchovny. But but yeah, I, I really struggled with those episodes back in the you day. You mentioned David Duchovny, who I just think he is such a wonderful addition to the show. He's weirdly not in it as much as I would have expected, uh, just because I'd always heard about that character, and that character certainly is something from season two, who just brings up these interesting possibilities of what you can do with the palette of Twin Peaks. Past a certain point with season two, I kind of felt like the two 
aspects of it that I enjoyed were either the obvious aspects that tie into these teasing ideas about the White Lodge and the Black Lodge. Conversely, the moments that are just so willfully anti-narrative, I also really appreciate to think of characters who were introduced in season two who we do really like. There's the whole absolutely endless and go nowhere plot line about how Lucy is pregnant and she's trying to decide who is going to be the father of her child which brings it a character I do truly cherish named Dick played by the actor Ian Buchanan and I believe I mean he was clearly so liked by the creators that I think he was the lead of that short-lived TV show that Lynch and Frost produced right after Twin Peaks which I believe was called On the Air he, he to me is the sort of goofy element of the show at it's best insofar as it's at least funny. I mean, he's this sort of vision of this kind of, you know, mid-century Cary Grant-like dandy. And he has a plot line that, based on our conversations, I assume you must totally despise. But he sort of, like, adopts as a sort of Big Brother, Little Brother program this character named Little Nicky, who... He quickly concludes is either a sort of serial killer or may in fact be the devil, as he sort of tells Andy at one point. And I so cherish the lunacy of that. I know that it's weird for the sake of weird in a way that plays right into some elements that don't work as well in this season. I mean, let's not even get into James and the sort of bizarre Harlequin romance he finds himself in with the girl and her brother, who's actually not her brother, and her husband. And you know, there are those elements that feel more in line with this kind of sense of the show as almost a parody of your Knott's Landings or your Dynasties or your kind of 80s soap operas. And that stuff does not work. But some of the sort of willfully absurd things do kind of work for me. And hey, Jeff, who knows? Maybe little Nikki is tied into the White Lodge mythology. We don't know. We have no we have no evidence for it either way. <laughs> I didn't like that stuff back in the day and it was very tedious to watch now. It was less tedious. It's less tedious now because we can binge it. You could push through it. But when I watched it back in 1990 into 1991 where especially after the death of Leland and you kind of want to watch the show explore more of that supernatural stuff. And we keep on getting teased of the coming of Wyndham Earl, which the show is just really building up and making him this mythic character. And you kind of understand that that's going to be like the next big conflict, the next big story of Twin Peaks it's teasing all this stuff, but delaying it too. The problem with this stuff maybe isn't necessarily in concept, but just in execution. And this is where we kind of really miss David Lynch and where the show, you know, I to a quote that really sticks out to me about the revival that we're about to see. Uh, came from the, uh, the Showtime's president and CEO, David Nevins, who a couple months ago said that the new show is David Lynch on heroin. <laughs> and, you know, that kind, of, that kind of captured everyone's imagination for, oh, what's this going to be? Is this going to be like David Lynch at his most hallucinatory, fragmented narrative, lost highway, Mulholland Drive stuff? And it's, it sounds really exciting. But when I interviewed him a, a couple months ago, what he clarified there was that he meant heroin in the sense of like 
pure heroin, as opposed to diluted or cut David Lynch. And I think that when Showtime, you know, decided that they wanted to be in business on the revival, that was the one big issue that Nevins had, was that he wanted David Lynch to direct everything. He didn't want imitation Lynch. That's the problem with most of season two of Twin Peaks. It just feels so much like imitation Lynch. There is a discernible difference between when Lynch directs those scenes of comedy and when everyone is trying to do Lynch-like comedy. And that's my main objection to all of these stories. I watch them and all I think about is, would this be better? Would this be funnier? Would this be more interesting if David Lynch was directing it? And I think that like going back to Lumberjack Cooper, that ends up being kind of a symbol for that, where uh, famously like Kyle MacLachlan wanted to get out of the FBI suit. He wanted to see if he could play different tones of Agent Cooper, if Agent Cooper had different tones. And so they kind of put him in this sort of like flannel shirt with these like khaki slacks. But, you know, for me, it just didn't work. That's not what you wanted from the show. You wanted Cooper in his dark suit investigating things as a quirky FBI agent. And there's actually a moment kind of late in this middle passage of Twin Peaks before it starts really cooking with grease again, in which Cooper comes back into his room and he sees his suit hanging up in the closet. And he kind of like, you know, fingers it and looks at it and admires it. And even there, you sense that the show is realizing, yeah, we got to get him back in the suit and we got to get back to the stuff that really captured everyone's imagination about this show. Yeah. I mean, like one explanation for what's happening in season two, which is a little more prosaic than anything else, is so many shows and so many really good shows will have this thing that happens in season two where they just they start introducing new characters and they start doing new things with their old characters, things that kind of push them into a different arena. I mean, you know, you think about like in season two of Friday Night Lights, the decision to take Landry, who was like the anti-football character, and have him join the football team. It's this costume change that reflects a deeper and perhaps a kind of betraying shift in the character. And in season two of Twin Peaks... There's just a lot of that, you know, like Shelly stops working at the diner and you mentioned that, you know, Dale Cooper puts on his lumberjack outfit and Bobby puts on a suit and tries to kind of join up with the horns. And, you know, no one is going to high school anymore. And everyone is just kind of... Except for Nadine. Nadine is going to high school. She's she's going to high school. And and one thing I will say about the Nadine storyline is that is just so totally wrong, but the show's commitment to it, it kind of becomes... me the kind of season-long version of that famous sideshow Bob joke where he keeps on stepping on the rakes and it's like the first time it happens you're kind of like huh like you know soft laugh second time it happens like okay that's repetitive but the third through 90th times that's when the joke really lands that's kind of what the, what it's like with Nadine where just she has superpowers now and she's super strong and oh we're still doing that and it's 10 episodes later like I have a certain amount of joy for that but what you feel as we get to the end point of the season is like everyone just kind of gets back to their right place like new characters who are introduced are sort of disposed 
disposed of. And, you know, Billy Zane, who never does anything, just sort of like flies away. And, you know, Shelly comes back to the Double R Diner and says, can I work here again? And, you know, perhaps most famously, in what feels to me like one of the more compelling meta moments on the show, Gordon Cole returns, played, of course, by David Lynch, and literally tells Agent Cooper, put your suit back on. And I've always found that moment kind of has this compelling feeling of, okay, like, we're getting back on track to it. Now, mind you, mind you, when that moment happens, then Gordon goes to the Double R Diner and falls in love with Shelly because she's the one character that he can hear without his hearing aid, which, you know, maybe that's a sign that even Lynch himself is kind of getting lost in the weeds a little bit. Hello! I was wondering if I might trouble you for a cup of strong black coffee and in the process engage you with an anecdote of no small amusement. The name is Gordon Cole, and I couldn't help but notice you from the booth. And, well, seeing your beauty now, I feel as though my stomach is filled with a team of bumblebees. You don't have to shout. I can hear you. I heard that. I, I heard that. Um, do you want anything besides coffee? I heard you perfectly. And I can hear you honest, please. You don't understand. You don't understand, Miss Johnson. Do you see these? Huh? For 20 years, I've been asking people to please speak up, but for some weird reason, I can hear you clear as a bell. Say something else. Um, uh, do you want pie with your coffee? Good Lord, I can hear you perfectly. This is like some kind of miracle, a, a phenomenon. What's wrong with miracles? What's that? This cherry pie is a miracle. Would you please ask the lady with the log to speak up? Um, the pie. She was talking about the cherry pie. I heard you again. I heard you again. <laughs> Would you like some pie? Massive, massive quantities and a glass of water, sweetheart. My socks are on fire. That's a simultaneously delightful scene and also just a strange moment that is kind of lumped right in. In the midst of, we should say, a kind of strange sequence for the show's relationship with its female characters. I mean, it becomes clear that Wyndham Earl, he kind of selects like the three young female characters and says like, you know, one of one of them will be my target for this. And this is all happening as we're building up to the Miss Twin Peaks pageant, which what do we what do we feel about Miss Twin Peaks, Jeff? What was your take on that as you were sort of watching it? Because that that does become like the sort of penultimate level big build up event of the whole back half of season two. Yeah, you know, at the at the time when I'm watching it week to week, and I'm watching it now broken into chunks and being interrupted by hiatuses. This storyline, the Miss Twin Peaks pageant, is just one more bit of just quirky comedy, quote unquote, a registered trademark, mass manufacturer, David Lynch quirky comedy that I'm starting to resent. Rewatching it, though, I was just kind of struck that there is a meta quality to the Miss Twin Peaks pageant as sort of this almost 
meta commentary about the women on the show and maybe women in pop culture in general and how they're objectified and how they're demeaned and how they're only used and admired for their looks and external qualities. A lot of the little beats and moments of all this are being interrogated throughout. And I also think that there is a degree of self-awareness going on now in Twin Peaks that is acknowledging this sort of queasy thing that this town and this show is fueled by violence against women in an almost ritualistic way. And I think that the show is having its cake and eating it too. It's kind of really relying on that device, but it's also critiquing it. And it's something that we'll talk about a little bit more deeply next week when we talk about Twin Peaks Firewalk with me and its treatment of Laura Palmer. But yeah, like if you look at the entire season, you see these stories in which it seems like the show, in almost a knowing way, is looking for its next Laura Palmer, and then with that, its next ritualistic sacrifice. Um, And now we're kind of building up to... Who's the next one going to be? Is it going to be one of these three beautiful ladies of Twin Peaks? And that's being cast against this story in which all of them are competing to be Miss Twin Peaks. And they both kind of, the the sort of like the the text and the subtext kind of join um, in the form of the winner of Miss Twin Peaks is this um, new character to Twin Peaks, Annie Blackburn, who is Agent Cooper's love interest and she ends up being crowned Miss Twin Peaks, and she ends up being the one that Wyndham Earl abducts and uses to find the entrance into the Black Lodge, which is the thing that he's been searching for for most of the season, in addition to waging this sort of campaign of vengeance and terrorism against Agent Cooper, his former partner, who fell in love with his wife, um, and and whom Wyndham Earl ended up like killing his wife and stabbing Agent Cooper in retaliation for this love of fair. So yeah, like back in the day, Miss Twin Peaks didn't really work for me, but it kind of works for me now, especially as you kind of see the text and subtext merge. I'm not saying it exonerates the show in terms of trafficking and violence against women and its treatment of its female characters, but clearly it's on the show's mind. Clearly it's owning it. So yeah. Two things that I would respond to with with everything you just said, which I agree with. I think Miss Twin Peaks makes a lot more sense when you realize, as I did not the first time I saw the event itself, that the costumes they are wearing and the weird sort of like, you know, plastic that all of the performers have on is a direct reference back to Laura Palmer, who we, of course, discovered wrapped in plastic. And right. what that seems to be saying, both about the kind of mass marketing phenomenon of Twin Peaks itself. And, you know, you can read it in the lightest subtextual form as akin to what Steven Spielberg does in the original Jurassic Park, where there's already all this merchandise around for Jurassic Park. And there seems to be this awareness of the phenomenon itself getting out of control and becoming something more performative and less, you know, less believable. And, you know, there is with the character of Laura Palmer, this wonderful kind of Hitchcockian aspect to her. And, you know, the fact that she has this double who is a brunette feels like a direct reference to Vertigo. And once you get to Vertigo, you kind of get naturally to this notion of, you know, 
is the female in this case, Laura Palmer, is she kind of meant to be a stand-in for the Hollywood treatment of women? And so I would just say one of the most beautiful and haunting scenes in season two comes from an episode that was not directed by David Lynch. It's the third to last episode titled The Path to the Black Lodge, directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal, who's the father of all of the Hollywood Gyllenhaals. And there's this incredible scene, I just go back and watch over and over again, where it begins in a close-up on a leaflet for the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. And the leaflet is covered in ketchup, but of course it looks a little bit like blood. And then just in one beautiful take, the camera kind of pulls out, and you see Annie, the character played by Heather Graham, is sort of trying to clean it up. Dale Cooper, who by this point has become almost eerily, if you want to read it that way, uh, focused on her. There, there is a love at first sight quality to their interaction that is either childish and adorable or a little strange if we accept the idea that Dale Cooper is a normal male human. But in this scene, what's happening specifically is that he's telling her she should participate in the Miss Twin Peaks pageant, which we know will kind of ultimately be something that may doom her. And the camera just slowly pulls back for this whole kind of two minute sequence between them until they are very far away from us and in that moment you know there's something almost off in a visceral but not stamped to make an obvious kind of way and it, it does make you think as we go into the finale which is one of the best things I've ever seen and which to me more than anything justifies why someone should watch all of season two you know the finale seems to simultaneously Simultaneously, be yet another restatement of what we should be thinking about this show, uh, while also maybe just being one last let's throw it all at the window and, and see what sticks effort by the creative team. And it just it brings up these interesting ideas about what is Dale Cooper's role. And if he's the hero, why here at the end is his purpose oddly kind of pushing this new character who you've beautifully described, like thank you, Heather Graham, for volunteering as tribute to be this show's sacrifice. You know, if he's pushing her towards that, what is his role exactly? And I, I find that the latter episodes in their soft, you know, occasionally cutting to Billy Zane kind of way, they seem to be really dissecting all this stuff in a really exciting fashion. We, we have to get to the finale, though, Jeff. This finale is... I just think it's incredible. I, I kind of go back and forth between overanalyzing it and, and wondering if it needs to be overanalyzed. My question for you is, do you think in the finale when we go into the Black Lodge or maybe go into the Black Lodge or maybe go into the waiting room between the Black Lodge and the White Lodge, to what extent is this finale, which was directed by David Lynch and is, is credited to Mark Frost and two other longtime writers on the show, to what extent is it... Is it something that was written to be a conclusion? To what extent is it something that we should take as a a tease towards the deeper mysteries of the show? To what extent is it just kind of a thing where they were like, maybe we're going off the air, like let's just let's just do it. Let's just do something like totally out there. I find that I appreciate it on all those levels, but I'd be intrigued to know what your kind of take is on the finale, which among anything else, is one of the stranger things to ever happen on television. I think it's fair to say. I think if you're listening to this podcast and looking for some kind of like big prologue to the revival series, the thing that you have to take seriously about season one and especially even season two is all of the supernatural stuff 
all the mythology stuff, all the Bob stuff, all the Black Lodge stuff, and particularly the finale, it just all signs point to the fact that the revival is really going to focus a lot on that stuff and explore that, expand it, explain it maybe. That's what we reported in our recent cover story. That's the expectation of it. So I would say that first and foremost, if you're rewatching Twin Peaks, pay attention to the season finale and just lean into it as like, this is just incredibly important to like your mythological understanding of Twin Peaks. That said, I mean, I think famously the behind the scenes story of this episode was that, yeah, the, the, the writers of the show and specifically Mark Frost, Robert Engels and Harley Payton, you know, they conceived a story with David Lynch for the finale and they technically wrote a script. But once David Lynch got on set, he ripped up a lot of it, reinvented a lot of it. And specifically the last 20 minutes that takes place in the Red Room which is either the purgatory in between the White Lodge and the Black Lodge or is the anteroom to the Black Lodge. A lot of that seems to be largely improvised and made up by David Lynch on set. And if it's true, I mean, it just kind of affirms just the kind of artist that he is, whereas he's just so, he goes by his gut and he goes by his intuition. And sometimes that can produce brilliance and other times it does not. But in this episode in particular, it is just so suffused with his personality and his style, every scene it seems, and and particularly all the stuff at the end. He has this famous quote David Lynch did about the second season of Twin Peaks in which he said, a lot of Twin Peaks got goofy in the second year. Everything is a mixture and the balance is critical. And I thought Twin Peaks got pretty goofball and that's not good. (laughs) And so what you kind of get the sense of in that final episode of Twin Peaks is David Lynch re-engaging his creation, taking re-ownership of it all, uh, maybe apologizing a little bit to the fans, but trying to make some things work and trying to capture your imagination again for a third season that it's never going to get with some crazy stuff. But we could talk about a lot of the other things uh, in this episode, but I almost feel like we should devote the rest of our time to just the Red Room stuff, which is just crazy, scary genius. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's just so good with evil, not in terms of like his belief, as I talked about earlier, but in terms of like dramatizing it. And there are a couple moments in this sort of Red Room sequence that just crawl inside of your brain. And one thing that I always, since seeing it, I can't get out of my head is, you know, the image we have of Laura Palmer in this episode feels so tantalizingly new, which is remarkable given that we've learned so much about her and we've seen her in dreams, we've seen her in flashbacks, and yet there is the famous moment, which of course comes into play given the revival, where she tells him, you know, I'll see you in 25 years. But then there's just the moment where the camera just goes close up to her and she's right up in Dale Cooper's face and her mouth just opens wide and her eyes are white and just this sound that comes out of her is just truly unlike anything else I've I've ever experienced. But to your point, I love the way in which improvisation mixes with a perfect 
keen sense of tone here. You know, nothing, no element of this feels weird for the sake of weird, right? That's kind of my feeling of it, that somehow it feels intentional. Now, I think the more you watch it with Twin Peaks eyes, the less arbitrary and indulgent it seems. There is an underlying logic and explanatory logic to the whole thing, or at least maybe that's just my crazy theory. But yeah, like Agent Cooper enters into the Black Lodge and we get his initial entry into the Black Lodge plays like an overture for some dark tragedy that's about to happen when you get this singer kind of singing this song about the sycamore trees and this really dramatic fashion against this strobe light thing. And then it ends and the singer disappears. It's this really kind of bluesy, mournful ballad that builds to this sort of dramatic peak. And then he fades away. And then Agent Cooper is once again sitting down with the red suited man from another place. And you get something that almost passes for explanations in this show. But like one of the first things that's established is that the giant and the waiter from the very first episode of the season are maybe one and the same. And that there are other people that are friends of Agent Cooper who are now dead, but now reside in this place that might be something like the underworld, including Laura Palmer. And yes, like the first thing she says, you know, hello, Agent Cooper. And then she says, I'll see you again in 25 years. Meanwhile, and then she drops off of that and then she strikes a pose like voguing, but it's almost like what she's emulating is that she's frozen like a statue so that she's going to remain in this place. And then all of a sudden there is like this flash and this crack and this burst of flame. And then like the man from another place says, wow, Bob, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And then like Bob is coming. Bob is here too. It isn't just a land of, of friends and friendly enchanted allies. There is evil that resides in this place. And that's at the point where I think that the waiter serves Agent Cooper a cup of coffee and he takes that cup of coffee and he tries to drink it. And then he notices that it's liquid and then it's solid and then it's some combination of both and he kind of turns it upside down and that ends up being kind of a metaphor for time i think and the way that when bob kind of interjects and breaks into reality time goes wonky and then cooper does this thing that's really important to the suspense and the way that this scene plays out And what happens to Cooper at the end, which is that we get what seems to be 90 hours, much like this podcast, or this really long period of time in which he walks back and forth between two different rooms. The room that he's in, then he goes out in this hallway with the chevron pattern on the floor and goes into another room and he goes back and forth and back and forth. And every time he goes to one of these two different rooms, they change on him. And in one time he sees the man from another place kind of all of a sudden his eyes are like yeah like have gone white and he goes doppelganger you know and that ends up kind of being this like foreshadowing of what's about to happen to agent cooper and maybe the sort of like dualistic nature of good and evil and the supernatural here in the black lodge where maybe our good sides and our bad sides reside like question mark i don't know and that's when he encounters laura palmer again and then she's got this rocking the scary eye look and she goes meanwhile and then she screams as she is manifesting her doppelganger self. He encounters Maddie in a black dress and all of this. And then finally, 
he gets to this room where he sees another room. And this is another great thing that happens. This way in which Lynch plays with time in which he suddenly now Cooper's realizing that he's been stabbed. He's been gutted and he's dripping blood all over the floor. And he goes into this room and he sees himself and he sees Annie on the floor, who he initially mistakes for Wyndham Earl's wife. And that's an interesting kind of beat that kind of plays out later when he goes to another room and he finally encounters a series of women. He encounters Laura Palmer again. He encounters Wyndham Earl's wife. He encounters Annie. And then they all morph and then like turn into Wyndham Earl. And there's this weird linking of all of these women as maybe kind of like one in the same, or they all have something in common. And they're the season's considerations of, of its use of women and the violence of the women and maybe Cooper's relationship to women and the tragedy that connects him to these women. And maybe he even brings upon them is all brought together in this really kind of metaphorical way. And Wyndham Earl strikes this deal with Agent Cooper in which he says that he'll let Annie go if Agent Cooper gives him his soul. And Cooper says, okay, and way to go, heroic Cooper. And so Wyndham Earl stabs him. So we get the explanation for why Cooper was stabbed. But then Bob intervenes and reverses time and takes the knife out of Agent Cooper and seizes Wyndham Earl and basically says, no, this this interloper, this pretender that has gotten into our underworld, he has no business here claiming our power. I do this, not him. I'm going to take his soul. And Cooper, you better get out of here. You go. And, and that's when Cooper starts now running back and forth in between rooms. And this long scene that, that preceded all of this in which Cooper is going back and forth between these rooms, losing his sense of space, losing his orientation, we are too, ends up paying off because we get the sense that he's lost in this place. He doesn't know where the exit is. And meanwhile, now he's being chased by his own dark doppelganger with the white eyes. And it leads to this moment where good Cooper's now on the run from bad Cooper and good Cooper encounters Leland Palmer, who was lost in this place. And Leland Palmer says, I didn't kill my daughter. But then he says it with this really kind of sinister look on his face that might be suggesting that he's disingenuous and that's really creepy. Cooper runs away from him. Bad Cooper comes in. He and Bad Leland have this look. Then Bad Cooper gives us a look, looks right into the camera, this whole meta thing. Now we start getting these meta flourishes that are happening with characters looking right into the camera and acknowledging us. And finally, Bad Cooper tackles Good Cooper. And then all of a sudden, Agent Cooper is dispelled from the Black Lodge. But we realize that no, he's been possessed by Bob or his dark doppelganger has taken his place. And in the aftermath of good Cooper getting tackled by bad Cooper, Cooper is expelled from the Black Lodge along with Annie. And we come to find out in the final scene of the season finale that the Cooper that is out of the Black Lodge is actually either a Cooper that has been possessed by Bob or is the dark doppelganger Cooper. It's a heartbreaking, sinister, shattering finale because by that time, Twin Peaks fans knew that Twin Peaks wasn't coming back. This finale aired in June of 1991 after ABC had announced that it was not going to renew Twin Peaks. And so this was it. This was our final statement. And it was like, are, are you kidding me? Not only did Twin Peaks suddenly get outrageously awesome again with this final episode, but you're going to leave us with that? 
I don't know. For me, Darren, kind of going back to reading this episode as a sort of metaphor for David Lynch's attitudes about Twin Peaks, but there is something in retrospect really fitting about that finale in the sense Shades Cooper literally with this real moral ambiguity about everything that he's ever represented and cast a little shade on everything that we found magical about the show because here was this show that seduced us and entranced us with this dark mystery and we get sucked into it just like Agent Cooper gets sucked into it and we are enchanted by this town just like Agent Cooper's enchanted by this town. All of its considerations about mystery, all of its considerations about evil and the allure of the dark side, if you will, kind of come to a head with the season finale in which we are left hanging and our own romance with Twin Peaks' mystery comes to this heartbreaking end when we're just completely burned by it. Like we were sucked in and now we'll never get resolution or so we thought in 1991. Yeah, I mean, I I just think that the final moment, which of course has the wonderful visual resonance that as Cooper sort of slams his own head into the mirror, that is a sort of beautiful and horrifying callback to the moment of Leland killing his, his niece and him sort of slamming her face into the mirror. And so you end on just... This beautiful mystery reclaimed, but also denied, of Cooper as now the victim. So, you know, again, if we're kind of graphing this all on the sort of classic, like, noir detective hero investigation narrative, you know, the investigator has now become both victim and also perhaps perpetrator. And as he kind of says at the end, as he's kind of, you know, calling out to Annie, How's Annie? How's Annie? There's this sense of, you know, aha, is he now going to do to her what has been done to so many other female characters on this show here in Twin Peaks? And, you know, it leaves open to me what you're getting into, which is this fundamental, fascinating inquisition into what was Cooper doing all along? Are we to take this as a very disturbing takeover of him, this sort of perversion of this wonderfully heroic figure into something much bleaker or if we accept that Bob's entry into people is somehow a kind of greater symbolic idea of darkness and evil entering someone was it always there a little bit was his sort of fascination with this mystery somehow leading him here in a very Greek tragic way I mean I just I love I love pondering that and to your point exactly I love how this episode demands that you that you ponder all that stuff again from a whole new right Right, right, right. There is this kind of aspect of Agent Cooper by the end where is he kind of like this film noir hero that gets sucked into something and is ultimately, you know, burned by it or destroyed by it. But he's also got that Lovecraftian cosmic horror anti-hero quality to him where he's entranced by the supernatural and by dark forces that ultimately take control of him and own him and possess him. I'm sure Alan Moore loved all of that kind of part of it all. (laughs) But there's also this other part of it that has been teased throughout the whole season is that Cooper has this almost, he's like spiritually simpatico with Twin Peaks in a way that's suspicious and weird, as if maybe that and this is sort of like now we're getting into crazy theory land, that this is almost like his native land in a way. And there is that odd moment 
earlier in season two where Major Briggs presents Agent Cooper with these readouts of all of these satellite scans that they've been running on Twin Peaks. And it usually comes back gibberish, like space gibberish, in the way that like the SETI satellites are always sort of scanning the heavens and receiving strange signals from outer space that ultimately are just like space garbage. They make, they're just nothing, right? Well, apparently the forest of Twin Peaks emanates similar signals, except for a brief period of time when it sent the message, the owls are not what they seem, but also started saying Cooper, Cooper, Cooper. And there is all this quality of Cooper that is consistently portrayed as this sort of like Starman-like, E.T.-like alien who has come to Twin Peaks and is just taken by the exoticness of it all. And he has that kind of like wide-eyed love of this quirky town, this ultimate outsider, you know, gaining this sort of appreciation for this world. So... Yeah. One crazy theory speculation I have is that you wonder if like some massive origin story of Agent Cooper is about to be told to us where we find out that, you know, spiritually, you know, he was once a resident of Twin Peaks or maybe he himself came from whatever the Black Lodge came from. Or maybe he's an alien, Darren. Maybe that's what I'm getting to. Maybe Agent Cooper is an extraterrestrial. Don't dance around the sycamore trees, okay, Jeff? Just get right down to it. You think he's an E.T. I think that the show is very much in the sort of Elder Gods, like Lovecraft pantheon, which is sort of alien anyhow. So I'm with you on any hot Dale Cooper theories. I just think that, like, whatever his origin story may be, what comes across so strongly here is just this idea of, like, forcing you to really ask, what was his purpose all along? What was he here for? Was it solving the mystery or was it just sort of maintaining this sort of beautiful mystery and I just find that the fact that they don't answer that but also give you a brutal answer in this finale is something that I find really really wonderful and it makes me just so excited. Right 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 and you know what like you would think that like those kinds of questions those kinds of concerns about Agent Cooper that would make for like a really great movie And wouldn't it be interesting if David Lynch ended Twin Peaks with this major motion picture that was this ultimate Lynchian supernatural horror fantasy in which Agent Cooper fights for his soul and fights to his doppelganger and fights for the soul of Twin Peaks and all of that? That would be a really great movie. It would be awesome if like David Lynch did that right after Twin Peaks. Wait a minute, he did make a movie, didn't he? Yeah, he, he did. And Jeff, now, the movie, of course, was Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. It answered all the questions. It did? Right? It answered all the questions, and it it, it forwarded the story. Well, uh, I, I I think so. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Hold on, wait. hold on. Was there a whole first part of that movie featuring singer Chris Isaac? I'm not sure. Is that something that happened? Is that <laughs> Darren, what we're saying is that that movie, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, did not do any of that. And uh, and as a result, was is probably maybe the most controversial controversial piece of Twin Peaks media in the Twin Peaks canon. And I think we should devote a whole podcast discussing that. We should do that next week. We are going to dig into Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. We are also just going to round up anything that we want to say about the show before the revival. And that brings up something because we also want to hear what you have to say about the show. If you have anything you want to say about Twin Peaks that you want us to discuss on the show, you can email us, twinpeaks.ew.com, tweet at us, 
He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich. I'm stoked for getting into the movie, but it'll be a whole lot of fun. Come back next week for the third and final prologue before the revival begins episode of a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. <laughs>